0: Now, the top of the hour on the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn presents the Green News Report. The numbers will increase, but they will not increase, we hope, uh, uh, to catastrophic, further catastrophic proportions. We just don't know yet.
1: Extent of heartbreaking losses becoming clearer in Maui fires. New evacuations as Canada's record wildfire season rages on, plus...
2: Instead of exporting American jobs, we're creating American jobs and exporting American products.
1: One year later, the Inflation Reduction Act is turbocharging a U.S. clean energy boom. All of those
0: booms and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman.
1: And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand
0: by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment this
2: legislation they oppose or attack is now the greatest thing to come to their states you have marjorie taylor green you know the very quiet lady from
0: georgia well she talked about what biden's doing is what roosevelt did what kennedy did well yeah well yeah this is your green news report Okay, Desi Doyen, more grim news out of Hawaii today, but at least the bad news is slowing down
1: a bit. Uh, That's a good way of looking at it. As we go to air, on Maui, Hawaii, the death toll has surpassed 110 and is still rising. Downed power lines are under new scrutiny as a potential ignition source. Amid massive mobilization of resources for search, recovery, and relief efforts, FEMA estimates it will take many years to rebuild the destroyed town of Lahaina at a cost upwards of $5.5 billion. Preliminary insurance industry estimates put total economic loss and damage from the fires as high as $10 billion. The Maui fires destroyed nearly 3,000 structures, the vast majority residential, worsening the pre-existing affordable housing crisis on the island. Survivors say they are already being approached by developers wanting to buy land where their homes once stood.
0: You know, many, of course, think of Hawaii as a paradise. But the fact is, over the past 20 or so years, according to AP, Disasters like this, thanks in no small part to climate change, have sort of gone through the roof on Hawaii.
1: Canada is also still grappling with a record wildfire season intensified by extreme heat and dryness. The government of the Northwest Territories declared a state of emergency this week due to multiple out-of-control wildfires that completely obliterated the rural town of Enterprise and now threaten the territorial capital of Yellowknife. There's no relief from the unprecedented heat that is intensifying the fires in Canada. Parts of British Columbia broke new all-time high records this week for the month of August, topping 106 degrees. Portland, Oregon this week also set a new all-time high August temperature record of 108 degrees. That's about 25 degrees hotter than normal. The last time Portland, Oregon was this hot was during a 1 in 10,000 year heat wave that hit two years ago. As the pace of costly climate change intensified extreme weather disasters accelerates, climate solutions are also gaining speed. Good. One year ago this week, President Biden signed the Inflation Reduction Act, the largest single climate investment in U.S. history after a long and very difficult struggle. Experts say the Inflation Reduction Act has already been a game changer for the clean energy sector in America. But experts say it has also spurred other countries to boost their climate investments to
0: So not only a game changer here in the U.S., but a game changer around the world.
1: Yes. However, a recent poll found most Americans are unaware of the law's profound impact. 70% say that they've heard little or nothing at all about the Inflation Reduction Act since it was signed into law. The IRA invests $370 billion over 10 years to accelerate renewable energy projects, increase domestic clean energy manufacturing and electric vehicle manufacturing, and boost electrification, including the first major incentives for homeowners to transition away from polluting fossil fuels. According to new analyses, the climate law has spurred a factory-building frenzy in the U.S. More than $110 billion in new private-sector clean-energy manufacturing plants— including the nation's first solar panel recycling plant. Nearly 200,000 new jobs in the clean energy sector alone. That has spurred others like the European Union and India to boost investment in their own domestic clean tech industries. President Biden, in a tour of a wind energy plant in Milwaukee, Wisconsin this week, noted that all congressional Republicans voted against the Inflation Reduction Act as he highlighted the surge in clean energy jobs and U.S. manufacturing. We're
2: investing in... In America, according to Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs, my plan is leading to a boom. They call it a boom in manufacturing
0: and manufacturing investment, as you're seeing right here in this factory. A building boom, a manufacturing boom, a jobs boom, a clean energy boom sounds like a good idea to me. For much more on all of these booms and the ones we couldn't get to today. Check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks, Mastodons, and site formerly known as Twitter, at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Please help progressive voices support the Green News Report by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate.
3: To invade, search out, capture, vanquish, and subdue all Saracens, that's Muslims, uh, and pagans, whosoever, and other enemies of Christ. From
2: Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief. I'm Interfaith Alliance President, Reverend Paul
3: Brandeis Rauschenbusch in New York City. This is what Pope Nicholas V grants to the king of Portugal at the time and, and puts it in very clear language. He grants him the rights to uh, take all of their possessions, all movable and goods whatsoever held and possessed by them. And here is the kind of kicker phrase at the end and to reduce their persons to perpetual slavery. Right. So in other words, like whoever isn't killed in the conquest and the vanquishing stage of things, there is a Christian blessing Uh, given by the highest authority in the church for these European powers to reduce their persons to perpetual slavery. And this is the seed that flourishes, it lays the foundation for the genocide toward Native Americans in the Americas and then uh, the subsequent uh, enslavement of Africans.
2: In recent years, Dr. Robert P. Jones has added to his extensive work directing the Public Religion Research Institute with three books, The End of White Christian America, White Too Long, The Legacy of White Supremacy in American Christianity and now on September 5th, the release of The Hidden Roots of White Supremacy and the Path to a Shared American Future. Dr. Jones is back with us this week to explore those themes. We have partnered with Religion News Service, the leading religion journalism organization in the country. And as part of the RNS family of podcasts, there's a next generation podcast I want to make sure you are subscribed to at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platforms or at stateofbelief.com newpodcast new podcast. State of Belief is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you've made a donation, thank you for helping keep these conversations heard by more people who need them if you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can help keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com. And you can find out more about the work of Interfaith Alliance and join us at interfaithalliance.org. And now to my guest, having established himself as a powerful voice on the intersection of race, religion, and power with his first two books, Dr. Robert P. Jones, CEO of the Public Religion Research Institute, is publishing another timely and insightful volume on September 5th. The title is The Hidden Roots of White Supremacy and The Path to a Shared American Future. And I'm glad it brings him back to State of Belief. Robbie, thank you so much for being with us here again.
3: Thanks, Paul. I'm happy to be here.
2: So I want to start with a quote That is at the top of the Emmett Till and Mamie Till Mobley Institute, which has this statement on its homepage, racial reconciliation begins by telling the truth. And that feels to me like a smart place to start with your project, because this feels like truth telling. How how was it to seek the truth for this book?
3: Well, thanks, Paul. I I think that's a great way in. Um, And actually, it's at the heart of what I've been up to for three books now, really, is trying to disentangle the mythology and the tendrils, really, of white supremacy that have crept into my faith and the churches that I grew up in, and just how to sort out what stories that I got told about who we are and how we got here are true. And which ones were self-serving and, frankly, Mm. cover-ups for what really happened and for the place that my forebears played uh, in some pretty horrific things in this country?
2: Yeah, it's almost a trilogy. I don't know if you think of it that way, but when I was thinking about talking to you today, I was just thinking about these three books, The End of White Christian America, way too long which was really looking at the christianity that you grew up with and the and the culture and then this one which actually it takes it even a step further did you set out to do this or is this something that a process of discovery kept urging you on and like didn't let go of you
3: yeah it's definitely the latter i i wish i could say i had the foresight that you know 10 years ago yes i plotted out you know this grand trajectory but but no, I mean, I think this has been a, a very much a journey uh, for me, putting one step in front of the other. And as I said, sort of trying to not just tell the truth, but really discover the truth. Because part of the the, the challenge is that even for someone like me, who, you know, I've got a PhD in religion, and I went to seminary. Yeah, I've got a pretty deep well to drink from here. And still am finding that in my kind of middle-aged adult life, I'm having to re-educate myself um, and really do some sifting and use, you know, these academic tools and um, and sift through family lore and, and all of it. So, yeah, you know, I think the, the first book, um, The End of White Christian America, was really more about data, right? It was about demographic change, sorting out what was happening in the country with the, the country moving from, being majority white christian country to one that was no longer a majority white christian country what what that was about and 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 really what that was uncovering right because what it did is it, it 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 um created an opening for different stories about the country to begin to be heard they've always been told right but it began to be able to be heard for people who look like you and me and then the next book was much more personal and it was taking it back uh, really into the 19th century and looking at the the Civil War in particular era um, when places like the Southern Baptist Convention were birthed, um, you know, as places to defend slavery, you know, this attempt to make it compatible with the gospel. And my own family's uh, wrapping up with that. And this one goes back even further. So I, I think if there's a, it is me kind of continuing to pull on this thread and just follow it, you know, wherever it goes. And, right. and in this one, I, I end up going back uh, really to the 15th century, um, not to 1492, you know, when we all learned that Columbus sailed the ocean blue, but really to the next year, to 1493, where uh, some very significant uh, Christian theology began to coalesce that's still with us today. Could you talk about that? Because I, I do think
2: what you're describing sounds like excavation, and that that feels really important to be able to see, like, what's the architecture underneath the country that we're living in. And this book does um, lay plain some of that architecture and and some of the foundational ideas and images. And so why don't you talk about that foundational idea? I, I assume you're talking about the doctrine of discovery.
3: Right. Yeah. So this thing called the doctrine of discovery, um, if you had brought that up in a conversation that you and I had uh, right after I'd finished the last book, I wouldn't have had much to say about it, frankly, Uh, you know, vaguely heard of it, but didn't really know much about it at all and certainly didn't understand its significance uh, for where we are today. But, you know, um, it's notable that when I think about the big divides in the country and, you know, at PRRI, we do a lot of polling and trying to sort out policies and attitudes about policies. What's become kind of clear to me, is, especially over the last decade, is that our divides in this country are less and less about policy differences and more and more about identity. Um, There are debates over who the country is, who the we and we the people is, or the our, all these kind of possessive plural pronouns that we use. Who counts? Who's in? Who's out? um, What does it really mean to be an American? I mean, these big, deep, deep stories. And what it's done is it's brought to the surface these two conflicting streams in American history and that actually predate American history. And and that's kind of what the Doctor of Discovery gets at, And at the heart of it are are two very different and mutually incompatible visions of the country. On the one hand is this vision of a pluralistic democracy, right, where everyone, regardless of race or ethnicity or religion, stands on equal footing before the law. Um, The other one, which has survived alongside of it uh, throughout our entire history, is this idea of America as a divinely ordained promised land for European Christians. Is that who we are? Which of these visions is really who we are and we can't be both? Yeah, it crystallizes it so well.
2: The doctrine of discovery was um, it was a guiding principle and it was an excuse there was some divine sanction oh everything we see is all of a sudden ours it it is ridiculous uh it, it, when you think about it but it was it was a it was mandated Do, where did it emanate from was it the catholic church to start with but certainly it was adopted well beyond that i'm just wondering what is yeah. the origin story of the doctrine of discovery and then we can get a little bit into yeah. what the implications were
3: so you know the problem or the dilemma really stems from the quote-unquote discovery of these new lands by Europeans that began um, in the 1400s. And so as it becomes clearer, uh, there's a whole continent, whole you know millions of people that have been otherwise unaccounted for by Europeans. So it creates political opportunism, economic opportunism, and it creates a kind of theological dilemma for who are these people? Uh, they're not Christian. They've not been exposed to any of this kind of Catholic teaching. And so what happens is There's basically a a free-for-all among the political powers to see who can get over there and claim the land the fastest. Uh, And so because there's this contest between, in the beginning, it's it's really Spain and Portugal competing uh, here, and they have a couple of options. They realize they're going to be fighting perpetual wars, or they can appeal to a referee and to sort of get some moral cover for what they're up to. And, And who do they appeal to? They appeal to the Pope. In Rome. And so they say, here are these things. We have these competing claims, and how do we adjudicate them? And it's really remarkable that the church, and at this time, again, this is before the Protestant Catholic split. So there's only one Western European church, and it, it has the Pope in Rome as the head of it. So when the Pope speaks, this is uh the moral religious authority for all of Western Europe. And so they get this, this edict from the, the kind of earlier one is from 1452 and it is Pope Nicholas V. I want to read just a little bit of this because it's really important to get the flavor of this. There's no holds barred here. And so this is what Pope Nicholas V grants to uh, the king of Portugal at the time and, and puts it in very clear language. He grants him the rights to invade, search out, capture, vanquish, and subdue. All Saracens, that's Muslims, And pagans, whosoever, and other enemies of Christ, right? Hmm. Wherever placed, uh, and to uh, take all of their possessions, all movable, immovable goods, whatsoever held and possessed by them. And here is the kind of kicker phrase at the end, and to reduce their persons to perpetual slavery, right? Hmm. So, in other words, like whoever isn't killed in the conquest and the vanquishing stage of things, there is a Christian blessing uh, given by the highest authority in the church uh, for these European powers to reduce their persons to perpetual slavery. And this is the seed that flourishes, that gives us the entire transatlantic slave trade that lays the foundation for the kind of genocide toward Native Americans in the Americas, and then uh, the subsequent enslavement of Africans to come in and clear all this land that they've then forcibly removed Native Americans from.
2: Mm. I mean, that is, that is absolutely shocking language that I have never heard before. It's revolting and, and evil. And and yet you can see the ramifications of each one of those yeah. words. And uh, yet you know, we
3: still hear, we still are hearing echoes of this, right? And in, in DeSantis talking about the benefits that enslaved people <laughs> received, right? From being enslaved. And that logic is deeply embedded here because the idea was that whatever harm you know, we Christian Europeans are doing to people in these in these lands, it is far justified by the fact that we are giving them Christianity and European civilization. Like we're yeah. bestowing upon them these gifts yeah. of Christianity yeah. and civilization. Yeah. And that outweighs any any genocide, any enslavement. Uh, ultimately right. those gifts are, you know, that side of the scale is so heavy that nothing can outweigh it. But and yeah. and that really is the spirit of Christianity that landed on the shores of this continent. Yeah. Save me
2: from those kind of gifts of Christianity. Mm -hmm. One of the most interesting things about this book is just taking back the history. And many people have done it, but there's just a really interesting, the way you did it in this book is really important, is that 1619 is a really important time, but 1619 actually was was influenced by a time earlier than that. And so if you talk about when we're starting the history to come, it complicates that narrative and invites actually the experience of Native American people across the country and puts it in conversation with 1619 and 1776 and 2023. Talk a little bit about those juxtapositions and and how you think that that is a helpful framework for us to understand our current situation.
3: Yeah, no, this is going to be really important. Um, You know, in in the yeah current divides in our country, and we've already had this you huge fight over is it 1776? Is it 1619? And I think that was actually a healthy conversation for us to have. And the 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 important work that the 1619 project did was dislodging, you know, this sense that the country began with a bunch of white men in a room in Philadelphia. Right. And that, 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 that's the, that's the image of the beginning of the country. So dislodging that I think was a monumental, you know, feat and important, but it does sort of, if we, if we only start at 1619, um, it does leave out hundreds of years of uh, this kind of connection between the, the, 15th century, right? And the 17th century of this kind of violent conflict between uh, Europeans and Native Americans. So it leaves out the Native American story in a way that I think is important. So one of the things I've tried to do in this book, whether we're trying to connect up, for example, the story of Emmett Till, you know, the killing of Emmett Till in, in, in 1955, but saying that, like, to really understand the full context that made that possible, We have to understand the landing of Hernando de Soto in Mississippi on behalf of Spain with this idea of the Doctor of Discovery, um, you know, on board 400 years earlier. If we want to understand uh, the Tulsa Race Massacre in Tulsa, we have to understand the Trail of Tears, that sort of forced removal of Native Americans in the early part of the 19th century that created the state of Oklahoma as we even know it uh, there. Uh, If we understand the lynching of African Americans in Duluth, in 1920, we've got to understand the Dakota Wars of 1863 and the mass execution of 38 Dakota men in the state of uh, Minnesota uh, by order, by the way, by none other than Abraham Lincoln.
2: Right. I, well, I mean, I think that that's in some ways the the central themes of the book are those three locations and kind of going deep into those three locations, uh, Duluth, uh, Tulsa, and um, Mississippi yeah, Delta. In and around it's,
3: Tallahatchie County. Yeah. Uh-huh.
2: I thought those were three very interesting choices. My guess is that you could probably find another three, probably another dozen, probably another 20. That would be interesting. How did you land on those three?
3: Yeah, I think that's right. Um, you know, I I think that the power of these stories is, is, is to kind of get you up close and on the ground. But you're right. You could go to almost any state uh, in the country and find these kinds of connections between the uh, kind of efforts that have become more prominent uh, during the Black Lives Matter movement and history behind that has to do with the genocide and, and uh, displacement of Native Americans behind that uh, story. Um, so, uh, for me, um, Mississippi is personal. I'm, I'm from Mississippi. Um, you know, grew up in Jackson. This is up in the Delta, um, but have kind of been following uh, the efforts over the last twenty years to tell the story of Emmett Till on the ground and, you know, just to give you a little flavor there, the um, if you'd gone to Mississippi 20 years ago, um, around 2000, there was virtually nothing on the ground marking uh, these events, even though the world knows the story, right? It was the spark of the civil rights movement. Rosa Parks said, you know, when she was making this decision to, um, you know, not uh, go to the back of the bus in Montgomery, she had Emmett Till on her mind. John Lewis talked about thinking about Emmett Till during some of his challenging moments during the civil rights movement. It's this well-known story, but if you've gone on the ground in Mississippi, there was nothing there. And 20 years ago, a group of black and white, interracial group of citizens decided we're going to tell the truth and try to get some healing in our in our community. It had been just buried; nobody wanted to talk about it. And it has resulted um, just two weeks ago, and President Biden just named uh, a new national monument that'll be administered by the National Park Service that that's going to be both in Chicago and in Tallahatchie County, Mississippi. So that story will be permanently now told and supported and federally funded. Uh, And Mm -hmm. that was unheard of, you know, 20 years ago. Uh, And Tulsa, I think I picked because it was so um, uh, in the news in 2021 at the 100th anniversary of, of the Tulsa race massacre. But I did want to connect up the story of the Osage and the Trail of Tears behind that. And then Minnesota, I wanted to kind of make sure I wasn't giving the impression this was only a Southern or a red state phenomenon, right? So Want to go to a good blue state right up next to Canada, uh, can't get much more north than, than, uh, than Duluth um, and show how th- these dynamics, you know, are, are even in a far north state like that are very, very similar.
2: Uh, tell me about the research because reading the book i was learning a lot which is always kind of embarrassing when you, these stories are all they're lying there in plain sight and yeah. yet i'm not the brightest guy in the world but i you know i'm fairly educated and some of these stories i just hadn't heard and and it just so how did you discover things what was your research like who did you talk mm. to i my guess is that the research must have been incredibly painful, but also bring you into contact with people and uh, that you might never have known and and opened your eyes in new ways.
3: Yeah, well, you know, this was part kind of traditional research, the kind you do, you know, and online and in libraries and books and journal articles and that kind of thing. But it was also a lot of on the ground uh, work because I, I did want to make sure that the stories I was telling had a contemporary component of people on the ground in real time, you know, working um, on on these issues. So I spent a few weeks in each of the locations um, and tried to talk to the kind of people who were had rolled up their sleeves and were working uh, together. And in the in the middle of that, you know, what ends up happening is, you know, you hear a story that you didn't hear before and you start asking, oh, what's that about? Like, tell me more about that, you know, and then you kind of follow that thread. Um, So it was very much a process discovery of discovery of my own again, and, and I came across, for example, the story in Duluth. Um, there's a there's two pages where I actually talk about this story, in White Too Long, um, but it just goes by in passing. It's a quick example, and the more I read about that, the more I realized, oh, this deserves a broader canvas. There's more to say here and more to learn uh, if we really kind of give it a little more oxygen and kind of you know uh, tell tell the story and put it in its historical. Uh, context. So that one I had uh, from there, Miss- Mississippi had personal connections there. And I think the what put the Tulsa one on my radar screen was the 100th anniversary. Uh, that and the fact that it, it is one of the, if not the largest, one of the largest kind of racial massacres in, in the country. 300 African-Americans killed in the span of just a few days by their white neighbors. Who um, right. just roving through the city, um, indiscriminately killing uh, anyone with dark skin.
2: We'll take another
3: break now and be back with more of my conversation
2: with Robbie Jones. If you miss any part of today's program, you can hear full episodes of State of Belief anytime on our website at stateofbelief.com. And make sure you subscribe to the Next Generation podcast. Please go to stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. That's stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. You're listening to State of Belief. Where religion and
0: democracy meet. State of Belief Radio, twice every weekend on the Progressive Voices Network.
4: 911, what's your emergency?
2: America's healthcare system is broken and people are dying.
4: Welcome to Code WAC where we shine a light on America's callous healthcare system, how it hurts us, and what we can do about it. I'm your host, Brenda Gazar. This time on Code Whack. How do Medicare Advantage plans use pre-authorizations and claim denials to maximize their profits at the expense of senior citizens' lives? And how are corporate health insurers getting away with this To find out, we spoke to Diane Archer, founder and president of Just Care USA, an independent digital media hub covering health and financial issues facing boomers and their families. One academic study in the National Bureau of Economic Review that was published a few years ago found that if the government canceled its contracts with the 5% of Medicare Advantage plans that are the worst performing, it would save 10,000 lives a year. Whoa. And what's really galling is not only is the government not canceling those contracts, but it's not even naming the Medicare Advantage plans with the high mortality rates so that people can avoid them. And we are working very hard to get the government to start naming those companies so that people don't choose a company with a high mortality rate. Right now, I can't point you to a Medicare Advantage plan that's high performing because we have no data. So you can't assume that any of them are high performing until we have that data. Get the full Code WAC story on progressivevoices.com and on the PV app. Catch all our episodes by subscribing to Code WAC wherever you find your podcasts. This podcast is powered by Heal California, a nonprofit that uplifts the voices of those fighting for healthcare reform around the country. Until next time, stay healthy.
0: Whether you're listening to Leslie Marshall each Tuesday through Friday or Brad Bannon each Monday, you can hear them from 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern on the Progressive Voices Network. Here's a sample of what you'll hear.
1: Scott Paul in the House. He's president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing.
5: You know, first of all, I do want to say that I don't believe a military conflict with China is desirable or inevitable. I think we ought to do everything we possibly can to avoid that. Um, at the same time, I think we need to be realistic about what the the intentions of the Chinese government are, particularly uh, with respect to some strategic competition, and they're not necessarily friendly to our interests there. Uh, and so it strikes me as odd that we would have a trade policy that treats the People's Republic of China the same way as it treats a country like the Netherlands or the United Kingdom or anybody else. It just that that doesn't make sense to me, uh, and so but that's what China has right now. It has something called permanent normal trade relations. It's not quite a free trade agreement, but the tariffs are super super low, uh, except for on some other goods that they've been punished for, uh, and so it, it just seems that we're at a moment where it makes sense for Congress to have more control over the the tariff rates and to use those as a bit of a leverage or a hedge, I guess, rather than having this uh, blank check that we've basically written to China um, with the expectation that its government would change its behavior over the course of 20 or 25 years. It's clear that hasn't happened. It's clear it's not going to happen and I think that's abundantly clear now, unfortunately. And so our lawmakers have it in their power to take it back uh, by by passing a bill to revoke permanent normal trade relations for China. Um, if you asked a lot of members of Congress who were around in the year 2000, they would probably say that one of the biggest mistakes they ever made was voting for PNTR for China. And that would be Democrats and Republicans to say, you know what, didn't work out the way we thought it would. Uh, big mistake. And so this is the chance not to turn back time 25 years, uh, but to make sure that, that we're building up some insulation, a hedge uh, against uh, bad behavior on the part of the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, and we're also giving Congress a little more control over how we manage our trade relationship with China at a critical time. What we need to do first and foremost is to protect American economic security, American national security, and to have a policy that reflects the actions that are being taken against us.
0: Again, that's Leslie Marshall every Tuesday through Friday, and Brad Bannon every Monday from 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern on the Progressive Voices Network. This is State of Belief Radio on the Progressive Voices Network.
2: Welcome back to State of Belief. I'm Interfaith Alliance President, Reverend Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. My guest is Dr. Robert P. Jones. His new book is titled The Hidden Roots of White Supremacy and the Path to a Shared American Future. I just happened to like see online that a white state representative in Tulsa saying, well, was it racist? We don't know what they were thinking. And like trying to whitewash, as you're doing this work, the effort to erase uh, history is going full steam. And it's so nefarious um, and it's, you know, out of fear and out of kind of willful ignorance. It can only be just so heartbreaking and disgusting to people who are the descendants and and Mm -hmm. even some who continue to remember it. One of the things that was interesting to me is that there were people in these places who were trying to make something out of it, trying to figure out, like, what could we learn from this? How can we tell this story in a way that invites people in, helps us learn from it, and fashions are that community, our country, in a way that will be better into the future. Mm. So talk about some of those stories, because that yeah. that's kind of the second half of the title of the book, is like a shared American future. It is so important to tell these stories of the past, and then helping us to figure out what to do with those stories in order to make the future different.
3: Yeah, well, thanks for that turn. I, I For a book that has the word white supremacy in the title, I, I do think ultimately it's a hopeful book. Um, I mean, I I left, you know, the research and writing process feeling more hopeful than I went in. It was mostly because I got to meet all of these people who in their local communities were doing such important work and bringing about healing, truth telling uh, in their communities. You know, in Mississippi, for example, uh, I mentioned that there was this group of black and white people that came together, but it's a small community. Like the the county seat has 600 Uh, residents, right? Uh, So it's a very rural uh, uh, place. And so that means that these people know each other, and they know each other's grandparents, and they know each other's great grandparents. And in this setting, what it means is that some of their great, great grandparents owned other people's great, great grandparents, right? And now they're working together. uh, And they know that they still carry the same family names, you know, down through. That was what was moving, I think, was uh, seeing actually a descendant of enslavers and a descendant of the enslaved, looking at each other, standing on equal footing and declaring like, we are going to tell the truth. And we're going to do that in the service of moving us to a different relationship with each other, right? And um, in, in the interest of kind of saying, yes, this hatred we're shining a light on so that we cannot not go there again, so that we can um, kind of bring some healing and move forward. Uh, together. And in Duluth, it was kind of remarkable. That one happened much earlier. So they they put this plaza uh, together, this group, and it, it got uh, put up in 2003, which means that, and it's this beautiful brick plaza with these images of these three men that were lynched and a bunch of quotes uh, around from different people about change and living together and uh, kind of embracing pluralism and democracy. And that space had been there for you know nearly two decades when the Black Lives Matter movement erupted, Uh, right? And so Duluth, like many places, had these spontaneous protests. But in Duluth, which again is a pretty white space, uh, but in Duluth, because they had this civic space dedicated to racial justice, there was this space where people knew to go, right? And it was a space where people could come; they could have these safe conversations. And this is an interesting little tidbit: and the police chief was a descendant of the woman who accused these three black men of raping her falsely accused them of raping her and was sort of the instigator of the lynching and was today uh the police chief in Duluth and he knew that history and had been involved in uh this truth telling and it really changed right the way this white police chief thought about policing in Duluth and, and he even talked about like we want to keep everybody safe, but we also want to make space, even though they haven't applied for a permit. And even though this is kind of a spontaneous gathering, we're going to not over-police it. We're going to kind of let this happen. Uh-huh. And we, and it was partly, though, because they had this civic space where people knew these kinds of expressions and conversations could find, find expression.
2: I wonder what is the next step. These stories are hopeful. And I'm just curious the involvement of the local native american tribes in any of those locations do they feel part of that story did you know when you would be interviewing them or talking to them were they making those same connections or do they
3: have a different narrative that they want us to hear i'm curious what you found yeah well that part i think there's still a lot of work to do you know and and i think that's where i the big energy we've seen is around black and white Dynamics, right? It's not that Native Americans haven't been raising these issues, you know, for right. forever, right. but uh, but it ha- they haven't really, I think, reached the level that the Black Lives Matter movement reached in terms of the kind of general consciousness in the public. Uh, so I think they have often felt left out of these conversations around the Tulsa race massacre, or around the lynching, um, and so I think they've been they've been supportive. For example, um, you know, we we've seen in some instances in, in Mississippi the Choctaw tribe was actually providing behind the scenes support uh, for kind of true telling efforts around things in Neshoba County, uh, for mm-hmm. example. But I think this is kind of a new moment where I think it's one of the things I'm hoping the book will help do is to connect these movements up uh, very clearly. And they clearly need to be uh, connected uh, together and it will change the conversation. Like one, one place uh, in particular, is that we're starting to have some serious conversations about reparations. What does that look like? What does that mean? How can we meaningfully talk about what reparations toward African-Americans means, as you know, who are descendants of enslaved people in this country and subject to Jim Crow and all these kind of denials of opportunities systemically for, you know, centuries? Uh, that's one conversation. And what I kind of learned in this is that, but we're going to have to add a different conversation for Native Americans. It's not really in reparations may not actually be the right word. Even the conversation there is about restoration, like land back. Like hashtag land back is mm-hmm. is the kind of phrase in the Native American context. So it's restitution of treaty obligations and land that's been uh, improperly, uh, you know, taken. E- even outside of what was agreed to in U.S. treaties. Uh, so that's a, a slightly different conversation. That I, I believe these streams are going to merge. But it hasn't quite happened yet. These two things still seem to be a little bit more parallel. Um, but I think there's some real value in, in bringing them together, if if no other reason that it kind of points to the common thread um, that's behind all of it, right? The, again, the same logic justified by Christianity, uh, white Christianity, that led to the kind of land, loss of land by Native Americans and genocide is the same logic that led to the enslavement of, of Africans.
2: So... Tell me for you, you know, as someone who grew up in the church in the South and um, like me as white uh, male, what has this done to your spirit? Because I think it's super important to have it do something to our minds and, you know, to impact the language we use and the frame of reference. But my sense is, is that this kind of revelation, uncovering that you're doing really has to go to the spirit for us to truly like um, be impacted in the way that we need to be impacted. These three books have taken a lot, you know, 10 years and it's has to have impacted some of the way you kind of understand who you are.
3: Oh, thanks for that question. I, you know, I think that's right. these are certainly all personal books and are, and are, I mean, really I I think about them as kind of documenting a journey that I just felt like I had to go on, right? To kind of sort things out, to wrestle it to the ground. You know, again, the thing I'm wrestling to the ground is the entanglement of white supremacy with my faith. Um and it's just that simple. How do I go about that, you know, and when you have something that has been so deeply entangled for centuries, it's not a simple thing to figure out where one ends and the other one begins. But I think that's part of what I'm what I'm really up to, but at the end of the day, I feel like it's about health. It's about spiritual health and integrity. And, you know, what I'm realizing is that like Baldwin, James Baldwin has this uh, line that has just always haunted me where he said that he and other African-Americans he knew often thought of white people as, and these are his words, the slightly mad victims of their own brainwashing, hmm. right? And 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 there's a kind of self-delusion you know, aspect of this. And, and the fact that like, uh, we can't, we have not been able to tell the truth about ourselves, um, you know, means that we're uh, always at a place of not really knowing who we are, uh, not really understanding how we got here. Um, And there's something deeply unhealthy uh, about that. It makes us act in ways that are um, unhealthy, not only toward ourselves, but to our fellow, uh, human beings. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, um, we should really want to sort that out. Um, yeah. The meta, the best like metaphor I think of, uh, you and I, I think talked about this, but, and I've talked openly about it, but, you know, I had a, a battle with colon cancer in 2011. And, you know, when you get this diagnosis, you know, it kind of freaks you out. It seems very daunting. And you agree to this treatment that is not, a simple road right it's surgery it's chemo it's you know and it it kind of brings you to your knees but you do it because at the end of the day you think you hope right that there's going to be help at the end of it and so I, I think of this in a similar way while it is challenging to hear some of these stories I'll just like one quick example as part of this digging just in my own family I found out that my my grandfather was a deacon uh, at the Baptist Church in East Macon uh, Georgia. And in the early 1960s, one of his roles as a deacon was to stand on the steps of the church and make sure that only white people entered the church, right? If there was anyone non-white. His job was literally to be a bouncer and to kind of prevent them from entering the church. And this wasn't a kind of wink, wink, nod, nod. This was like an official role for the deacon um, there. And he was an ex-Navy guy and kind of rough and, you know, could handle himself. And that's why he got the job. That's a hard story to hear. Um, it's a painful story to hear. Um, and all these other stories are, are, are challenging, but I think we we face them uh, because there is a way in which it helps us move to somewhere better. And, you know, I think that that our all of our jobs, every generation's job is to take, you know, what we receive from our tradition, from our faith, and we look at it, right? And we sift through it, right? And our job is to sort of like hold on to the best of it, but our job is also to excise the mistakes, the wrong turns, the dead ends, and to use a theological word, the sin, right, that infects, um, you know, our faith, and make sure we don't pass that on to the next generation, and I I feel like we have an opportunity, I think, now, because of the moment of reckoning that we're at, to do that work in a way that would have been very hard, I think, for people who look like us to do in previous generations, because they're it really just wasn't the zeitgeist, right, uh, for doing it. But there is now, um, and I think leaning into that is a top responsibility, you know, for people who look like you, you and me, and thinking about what Christianity is going to look like uh, going forward. Yeah,
2: well, it's it's fascinating because I agree with you, and uh, you know, another word is atonement, which we, we you know, it gets into reparations and things like that, but. There is an entire another strain that is virulent right now, which is moving in entirely the opposite direction, which is insistent on covering up the past, insistent on not belaboring those bad things, but actually, let's move on. Uh, Let's not, you know. So talk to me a little bit about writing this kind of book in the Mm -hmm. context of The erasure of uh, African-American history in Florida, for instance, and these other impulses that are really strong, like this is not these, they're not fringy things anymore. These are almost gospel to one of our two major parties is that we can't do the kind of work that you're suggesting we should do. And instead we need to move on and, uh, and celebrate how great America is and go that path. So I'm, I'm just curious, you know, to introduce the reality that we live in right now. And the extraordinary fact that millions and millions and millions of Americans are, um, supporting some of these candidates who I just find uh, unbelievable. Mm. You've been looking at, at the public and religion, uh, and, you know, statistically for a long time. And I, 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 I'm not so interested in latest polls as I'm interested in your general feeling about what it means to go into this next election yeah. cycle with all of these currents going against each other.
3: Yeah. Well, no, thanks for, uh, highlighting that. I, I think that's right. It kind of brings us full circle, I think. Um, so there's only I am going to give you some poll numbers, even though you said you weren't asking for any. Um, there's only one chart in this book, uh, by the way, um, and it, it is on this point because the real question is, OK, so there's all this history. Uh, sure. You know, the doctrine of discovery and all that is back there. But how is this really still with us today? You've highlighted some of the ways this is still with us today. But we actually asked a poll question that it was the closest thing I could write in a poll. To the doctor of discovery, and so it was an agree-disagree question, and we just put it out there, and we said, "Do you agree or disagree with this statement? God intended America to be a new promised land, where European Christians could create a society that would be an example to the rest of the world. Do you agree or disagree?" Now, among all Americans, it's about thirty percent of Americans that agree with that statement. So by two to one, Americans overall reject that statement. But as you said, it flows very differently into our two binary political parties. A majority of Republicans and a majority of white evangelical Protestants agree with that statement. So straight, from, you rip that straight from the pages of the Doctrine of Discovery, and you've got that. And it's, it's no coincidence, I think, that the Republican Party today is 70% white and Christian. So 7 in 10 self-identified Republicans are white, non-Hispanic, and Christian. Uh, that's remarkable. Right. In a country that is only 42% white and Christian. And so I think it again, it's no coincidence that the parties that's mostly white and Christian is saying, yes, that's the vision of the country we have. So I think it's just a it really is an example of how something that sounds as dusty and old as the Doctor of Discovery is still animating our divides today. And, and this question are we a pluralistic democracy where every everyone of every race and every religion stands on equal footing or are we a divinely ordained promised land for European Christians? That is the question that's being called uh, before us today, and it and it is the thing that is pushing the great uh, white Christian freakout, you know, on the right. Uh, and, 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 and <laughs> wait, 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 wait,
2: wait, wait! The great white <laughs> Christian freakout. Yeah, it's, it's like, like my... that, that. That's a party that no one ever. Well no one i know ever wants to be invited to but yes. that's the
3: technical I mean... <laughs> t- technical term for it yeah
2: right. <laughs> wow yikes yikes yikes
3: yeah. well, okay but it, so but it is it, a backlash it's a
2: backlash yeah. no 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 think, 100% right? and i you know yeah. I, it's it's fear it's um resentment it's like and i think that ultimately you know that baldwin quote rattles around in there somewhere yeah where it's like the 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 fear the resentment the um you know just like don't tell me that don't tell yeah. me that you know well it
3: messes with my self delusion right you know, totally um yeah. so
2: okay so give me three things that each of us should be thinking about doing to create a path to a shared american future mm. like i know it's not a how to book but yeah. i do think it's be, it's helpful for us to get a little bit more tangible and these don't have to be like you know, uh, Sunday school gospel. They just like I'm just wondering off the top of yeah. your head, what are three things that you can imagine each of us doing to take the second part of it to be the to take the awareness and then to begin to um, walk down a path together. What does that look
3: like? Yeah. Well, I think one of the things I became convinced by, even more in this book, was the importance of local action, right, and local involvement. Um, All of these stories, they're not denominations doing things. They're not advocacy groups doing things. They are people organizing on the ground in local communities to do things. I I think that's super important. Uh, So I think local, and it's because you build relationships at that local level, um, and you can still tell that group of two dozen people in Mississippi created a national park. For until right, I mean, you know, it, that I mean, it can well, be big.
2: They're also the ones who who know that that story is there,
3: yeah. And and kind of maybe this I'm going to count this as two, even though it's sort of maybe a corollary, but um, uh, I do think like in terms of churches, um, a really concrete thing that churches can do, um, and I know you've got a lot of folks that are kind of leaders or lay leaders or clergy uh, that listen here, but is to kind of ask the question. Why is our congregation located where it is? And if you just ask that simple question, right? So this particular land, why are we here instead of somewhere else in the city? All right. So there's a kind of concrete answer to that question. But then if you start peeling back the layers, well, were we here when this was a whites only area of the city? Were were we part of a racially restricted neighborhood covenant? Uh, Were we part of redlining? Um, you know in in our city uh, uh did we did we follow white flight out to the suburbs that's how we got here um you know like those kinds of questions and then even deeper like you know and whose land was this before a white person held title um you know, to it like what native american land and i think getting beyond just the land acknowledgment which i have, frankly have very mixed feelings uh, about um i think it's important for consciousness but it often doesn't go much further than that but what does it mean you know if you're uh, I mean, there's still plenty of um uh you know neighborhoods named for Native American names, right? Because that's what it was before uh, you know, the white people divided up into little plots and plumped houses on top of it, um, or, or strip malls on top of it. So I think getting getting really clear about that. Um, and then I think the other thing, I guess, is just uh deciding that we um people again who look like uh, you and I do, um I think we got to become convinced that we've got something at stake here. Um, I think all too often this is thought about as a altruistic, even even racial justice. Sometimes is thought about, oh well, let's see what we owe other people. If we're going to do something, and all that's right. I mean, there's certainly the 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 kind of reparative justice claims are very real uh, uh, and and concrete. But I do think the thing that many white people miss, and white Christians in particular miss, is that like we have something at stake. Uh, for ourselves right not, and not just for making things right with others. But again, I came back to this, um, you know, I, I think one of the things motivated me is that I was so angry when I first found out the truth, for example, about the founding of my uh, denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention, that it was founded to justify uh, slavery. Um, I didn't find that out in my 20s. And I was so mad. And I was mad because um, I'd been lied to right? By my pastors, by my Sunday school teachers, by my teachers, you know, at least some of whom knew that story, but didn't tell me. It wasn't until I got to seminary that I actually got that that story. And again, I just don't think you can't live into integrity, into a, a future with any integrity when it, when your past is built on a lie, right? And getting clear about that um, uh, and, and kind of wishing, you know, that we all live into a, a fuller uh, knowledge of the truth and you know, I mean, not to kind of, you know, I'm going to quote the Bible here, but you know that that the truth will set you free thing is real, right? Um, it really is, um, and and I, I think that's the thing. It hasn't How been. Dare sh- you quote the Bible? I know. So show. the overwhelming thing is has certainly not been shame, or I mean, I certainly have been brought to tears from time to time for reading these things, but but the overwhelming thing has been for me personally like an experience of healing finding integrity and finding relationships um, that, yeah. that I wouldn't have found if I hadn't been on this, this journey.
2: I, I think that that last one is really important because I think it's, it's an opportunity for your life to be richer. If yeah. you, if you go in with a curiosity and a willingness to listen and, and learn and um, have your, have your life, you know, your awareness expanded um, but also made so much richer. And that's like, I think I'm very eager to hear what your next book is, uh, I don't want you to, you know. Uh, yeah, me too. I, I, I yeah, but I just think <laughs> I, in some ways, what I mean by that is, I, I feel like um, I'm eager for this question because mm-hmm. I think you've, you've named it a couple times, and I'm gonna, I want to kind of end on this that we are in this moment where it's not about parties, and it's not, it is about those who have a different vision for the future of our nation, for the future, uh, and who are Who are looking for a shared future that is diverse and celebrates that uh, rather than one that elevates a certain um, race, religious tradition, gender um, and, and ideology over all the others. And I do think it's as stark as that. And and a lot of your work has, has pointed us to that awareness. So Robert P. Jones is the author of The End of White Christian America and White Too Long, The Legacy of White Supremacy in American Christianity. His latest book is The Hidden Roots of White Supremacy and a Path to a Shared American Future. Dr. Jones is founding CEO of the Public Religion Research Institute. Uh, Robbie Jones, I thank you so much for being with me here today. And it's really a pleasure. and, And good luck with this book. It's The Hidden Roots of White Supremacy and the Path to a Shared American Future. Thanks, Paul. And that's all the time we have for this week's State of Belief. As part of our new partnership with Religion News Service for distribution and expansion of this show Please be sure to subscribe to the new and improved podcast called The State of Belief at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform, or at stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. Subscribe to The State of Belief today. I hope you'll consider being a partner in this crucial work by making a financial contribution today. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. And you can also be part of making sure informative and encouraging voices like these are heard by sharing this program with family and friends. Let's get more people listening and more people taking part, both on and off the air. And join the conversation. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at State of Belief. And share State of Belief with the people in your life. The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect those of Religion News Service or Religion News Foundation. The State of Belief is produced by Ray Kirstein and is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week. I'll be at the Parliament of the World's Religions and I'll be interviewing people throughout the week and you will be able to hear those conversations. Until then, I'm Paul Rauschenbusch on State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet.